in this episode. Forced labor of Uyghurs in the Xinjiang region and Uyghurs transported across China to be held in forced labor is one of the most serious human rights issues of our time. I speak with attorney Martina Vandenberg, founder and president of the Human Trafficking Legal Center, an entity that uses strategic litigation to assist the victims of these abuses. But these types of crimes don't just occur in developing nations or totalitarian states. An American diplomat and her Australian diplomat husband, who trafficked domestic workers from Ethiopia, and the wife would go to work, and the husband, who was retired, would stay home and rape the domestic worker. It is a debasement of our common humanity. I'm talking about the injustice, the outrage of human trafficking, which must be called by its true name, modern slavery. The International Labour Organization estimates that tens of millions of people are being held in forced labour around the world. That's an extraordinary and horrifying number. In what parts of the world are the majority of these abuses occurring? The ILO's numbers are, are estimates, and so it's very difficult to know exactly how many people are held in forced labour around the globe. But the ILO partnered with Walk Free, and their estimate is that the largest number of people held in forced labour are in India. But this is not a problem isolated to one country. We see forced labor all over the globe. Forced labor of Uyghurs in the Xinjiang region and Uyghurs transported across China to be held in forced labor is one of the most serious human rights issues of our time. What's happening now to the Uyghurs has been called a genocide by the State Department, by the United Nations, and forced labor is part and parcel of what's happening to the Uyghur population in China. So the numbers are only estimates, but what we can say is that this is a global problem. There's forced labor in every country from the United States to China, to Saudi Arabia, to the United Arab Emirates, to Australia. We need new methods to try and tackle this because what we've tried to do in the past isn't working. You mentioned the United States where obviously immigration and undocumented workers have been and remain a major political issue. So I would imagine if someone is undocumented, then they wouldn't have the same rights and protections as a citizen, in which case they'd be particularly vulnerable to exploitation. Is that the case? Undocumented workers in the United States do have rights. They are protected by labor law. And so if an undocumented worker comes forward and says, I haven't been paid, they can recover those wages and the Department of Labor in every state and at the federal level will work on behalf even of undocumented workers to try and, try and recover their lost wages. The problem that we have across the United States is wage theft. And wage theft is something that I've called sort of the entry drug. This starts with wage theft and it ends with forced labor and voluntary servitude and something that looks very close to a modern form of slavery. Interestingly enough, I've been working on human trafficking for about 25 years. And in the course of my work on human trafficking in the United States and abroad for Human Rights Watch and as a lawyer, all of the clients I have dealt with, all of them have been documented. And so I think one of the major myths is that people believe that only undocumented people are vulnerable. But actually, if you have a legal visa and a legal contract and the expectation of a legal job in the United States, 
you can also fall into trafficking for forced labor because the way the visas work, not just here, but in many countries, is the employer's name is on your visa. And for example, if you're a domestic worker working for a diplomat in Washington, D.C., the employer's name is on your visa. And the moment you leave the employer's home, you are out of status. So everyone is familiar with the kafala system in the Middle East, where you are literally trapped and chained to an employer. But what we have in the United States and in many developed countries is what I would call kafala light. It's almost impossible to leave an employer without losing your status. And when you lose your status, then you are certainly vulnerable to other forms of abuse because now you're working in a completely gray economy. But what we have seen in all of the cases that we have done is that a legal visa and a legal contract and legal entry into the United States doesn't necessarily protect you. Looking more broadly at the world, we've seen horrifying stories of forced labor and people being mistreated in parts of Asia and Africa and sweatshops, for example, and making goods that then make their way to the United States. When these products enter US ports and airports, do we have the resources to identify these items and determine they have been produced through forced labor? It's such an excellent question. And fortunately, as of 2016, we have a new tool available to the US government to block those imports. The Tariff Act of 1930, again, a, a law that's been on the book since 1930, right. has a section, Section 307. Section 307 was amended in 2016, making it useful. It had been completely not useful for, for decades. Those amendments allowed that law finally to be enforced in an effective manner. And so Customs and Border Protection is now enforcing the Tariff Act Section 307, prohibition on the importation of goods made with forced labor and made with prison labor. And so what we have seen is robust enforcement, which is such a welcome development because that means that U.S. companies are finally waking up to the fact that using forced labor in their global supply chains is not going to be profitable. Their goods will be blocked at the border. They will be detained. They will be potentially fined. We frequently say that forced labor is a feature and not a bug in global supply chains. We are, in terms of forced labor, where we were in terms of bribery about 30 years ago. So 30 years ago, bribery was ubiquitous in the same way that forced labor is ubiquitous now. And what changed was enforcement. The U.S. government started enforcing the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, started prosecuting companies for paying bribes, started prosecuting executives for facilitating and greenlighting bribes by their companies. And so what we need is the same level of enforcement in the forced labor area. In terms of resources, you've asked a very important question because I think the answer is no. There has been a push to increase the resources provided to Customs and Border Protection. And I believe that they have just staffed up adding 30 new staff members to do these investigations at ports and, and to do investigations of allegations that come in of forced labor, allegations that are provided by civil society organizations or allegations that are provided even by competitors to companies that believe their com competitors are, are cheating and using forced labor. 
So there has been some increase in resources, but there also has been a huge increase in the enforcement landscape. So Section 307 was uh, resuscitated with the amendments in 2016, but then Congress also passed the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act unanimously. Congress doesn't do anything unanimously, but they did this. The Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act prohibits goods made by Uyghurs from entering the United States and creates a rebuttable presumption that if something is made by Uyghurs, the rebuttable presumption is that it's made with forced labor. It covers not only goods made in Xinjiang, it also covers goods made through the labor transfer program where Uyghurs are sent all around China to work in forced labor in factories and their sites. So the the demands for enforcement on CBP to do both of these laws both the Section 307 and the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. And I should add, there's also a similar law relating to North Korean goods. Any goods made by North Korean workers, those goods are also prohibited from coming into the United States. And there's a rebuttable presumption that those are made with forced labor. So the level of granularity to try and identify these goods is enormous. It's very demanding. CBP rarely publicizes detaining shipments. They rarely publicize specific detentions. But several years ago, they did announce that they had detained false eyelashes made by North Korean workers in China. And so huge shipments of false eyelashes coming into the U.S. market, but made by North Koreans in China. So CBP has ramped up, and that's important. But it's mostly harmful to the producers who are trying to import into the United States. It's inconvenient for the importers, but the importers aren't really facing much in the way of accountability. The other avenue that has to be pursued much more vigorously is prosecution of companies and individuals for use of forced labor in global supply chains to create goods destined for the U.S. market. And all the tools are there. The U.S. government has extraterritorial jurisdiction under 18 U.S.C. 1596, which is part of the trafficking law. They have extraterritorial jurisdiction to prosecute companies, just as they can prosecute companies for bribery in U.S. federal courts. Unfortunately, there has never been even one, not a single case brought against a U.S. company for the use of forced labor in a global supply chain. And that's, I think, changing because the U.S. government has admitted publicly that it has six federal criminal investigations ongoing against U.S. companies using forced labor in global supply chains. Privately, my understanding is that the number of investigations is actually far higher. It may be as many as 12 or 15 criminal investigations of use of forced labor by U.S. companies. But it will be a game changer, Dan. It will be a game changer the day that a U.S. company or a U.S. executive is indicted and convicted for forced labor in a global supply chain. It will be an entirely different playing field at that moment because the companies will realize that they have significant risk. And then without significant risk, they will not change. Periodically, we see reports linking major corporations with forced labor. And generally, the refrain is, oh, we had no idea our local partners in Bangladesh, China, or wherever assured us they treated their workers legally and fairly. But is it reasonable to think that if you move manufacturing to places known for having human rights issues and you pay very little for production, that somehow those goods would have been produced 
without labour abuses of some kind occurring on your line. Are these companies really being held accountable? I think it's fair to say that they are all on notice at this point. They should all be on notice. And the Europeans are approaching this slightly differently. The Europeans are approaching this with mandatory due diligence. And so companies will be required to know every layer of their supply chain and to prevent forced labor at every level of their supply chain. The American system has a kind of due diligence built in because the import ban regulations essentially assume that a company knows what its supply chain contains. Because when you import goods into the United States, you are essentially attesting that these goods are not violating U.S. law. I think companies should definitely be on notice. The other thing that's happening is we have a private right of action. So there's a private right of action to bring cases in federal courts by victims. And so there are victims of forced labor abroad who are bringing cases against U.S. companies here in the United States alleging violations of U.S. forced labor and involuntary servitude statutes, again, invoking extraterritorial jurisdiction to bring those cases into federal court. When you do find evidence of forced labor overseas, how difficult is it to bring a case here in the United States? It's not easy. It's quite hard. And we're generally not doing these cases ourselves. We're sort of supporting lawyers who are doing these cases across the United States. I think one hurdle is that many people held in forced labor don't know that they have these rights to bring a case in the United States. But then a second hurdle is that you have to be able to tie the goods to the supply chain entering the U.S. And luckily, there are tools to do that. There are shipping manifests, and we can see goods coming into the United States on you know, container ships. We can, we can find shipments coming into the United States. And we will often tell CBP we believe that this particular shipment is tainted with forced labor. And lawyers bringing the forced labor cases in civil courts can use that evidence to show that those goods actually did enter the United States and that there was a financial benefit to someone in the United States who, who sold those goods and, and made a profit. It's not easy, but the lawyers who do these cases, who are you know, colleagues of ours, they frequently comment at how remarkable and how courageous and how brave these workers are to take on U.S. companies and to take on forced labor and to be willing to sort of stand up and fight. And I have to say, it's, it's wonderful that they do that, but they shouldn't have to. If the system were working properly, there would be forced labor prosecutions brought by states and the workers wouldn't have to put their hands up themselves and say, we're being held in forced labor. But because we have, I think, a really significant system failure across the globe in the prosecution of forced labor, Sometimes the only way a victim of forced labor can actually get into court is if they bring their own case as a civil case. Given the scale of the problem worldwide, you'd think you'd hear a lot more about prosecutions. But despite the efforts of your group and others, the number of prosecutions seems comparatively low. What is the reason for that? I think forced labor has been largely ignored over the years and by ignored. It's here in the United States too. Last year in the US, there were seven prosecutions for forced labor in the entire country by all of the US attorney's offices and the Department of Justice. And the number of forced labor prosecutions sort of across the globe is fewer than 2,000 every year. 
So when you compare these numbers, so the ILO figure of 25 million and like compare that to you know fewer than 2,000 prosecutions a year, you can see that something is seriously awry. But I think people have talked about forced labor in terms of human trafficking, and it is a form of human trafficking. But the focus has been myopic on sex trafficking. And sex trafficking, there should definitely be prevention and protection of victims and prosecution of perpetrators. Absolutely. But it has been the focus really to the detriment of forced labor because the resources have gone really all in the direction of sex trafficking and not in the direction of forced labor. The other issue is that, you know, we have focused so much of our effort on prosecution and we also need to be much more thoughtful about looking at prevention. So how would you prevent forced labor in global supply chains? Well, number one, you would permit unionization. You would permit unions freedom of association. You would permit workers to band together to fight for their rights. You would eliminate recruitment fees because these workers arrive at the place of work with an enormous debt because they've had to pay recruitment fees. You would create across the globe employer pays recruiting systems so that the companies that are benefiting from the work of these workers have to actually pay to recruit them and pay to bring them into the factory. There are so many things that we could be doing to actually prevent trafficking that we are not doing that it's a bit troubling. And I think we need to have a major resource allocation. There are also systems that keep forced labor flourishing, right? There are systems that mean that people have to migrate for work because they are mired in poverty in their own countries. And then they you know, arrive in an, another more developed country for work, and they are paying off massive debts in their country of origin. People often get intimidated when you say something like, you know, we need to deal with poverty, right? You need to deal with root causes of human trafficking and root causes of forced labor. But I think we can't duck that. We actually do need to deal with those issues because otherwise this will just continue unabated. In terms of trafficking, when you're moving people within nations or across international borders, is there an intersection with organized crime? Because I imagine drug traffickers and gun runners and so on are using some of these same transit routes. Or is the enforcement of labor exploitation so lax that companies or individuals feel at liberty just to move people from one place to the next without really worrying about any eyebrows being raised? There is an intersection with corruption because you have you know, large numbers of workers crossing borders. And so there are opportunities for payments and extortion all along the way. So I think forced labor and corruption are essentially married. The organized crime piece, it's really interesting. When I worked for Human Rights Watch, I did investigations on sex trafficking. I worked in war zones, I worked in Bosnia, looked at trafficking in Kosovo. And my experience of investigating sex trafficking is that, yes, some of it's organized crime, but a lot of it is disorganized crime, right? It's people seeing an opportunity and a lack of enforcement and then literally importing women and children. Mm -hmm. So in Bosnia, for example, what I saw was you know, guys who owned bars 
or nightclubs, and they would, you know, sell beer and French fries, and then they discovered they could make a lot more money if they actually opened a brothel and held the women in forced prostitution and paid them nothing. So those were, you know, small scale criminals. They were not some kind of international, massive, organized fellowship. In a sense, your point is correct. You, you don't really need so much organized crime when it comes to forced labor because so much of the work that's being done is perfectly legal. And so much of the activity seems perfectly legitimate. We think about forced labor. You had asked earlier about what sectors do we see people in? I mean, certainly we see people in factory work. We see people, you know, manufacturing electronics. We see people in the fishing industry who are held in forced labor on fishing vessels for sometimes years at a time without any hope of escape. But we also see an enormous percentage, particularly of women who are trafficked into forced labor, find themselves in domestic servitude in the Gulf, in the United States, all across the globe. And that's an enormous problem because, you know, in a factory, you can at least theoretically do audits, although I'm very suspicious and skeptical of audits because oftentimes they just are exercises in checking boxes. Domestic workers held in domestic servitude are locked in houses and no one but the family may see them. We had a case here in the United States with a domestic worker held for 19 years in forced labor. The case was eventually prosecuted, but she had been held in the basement and none of the neighbors even knew she existed because she was told to hide whenever anybody came over. We have a problem sort of identifying, particularly the people held in domestic servitude. I don't know if you saw, but several years ago, there was a BBC special just before COVID hit where the BBC sent undercover investigators two Gulf countries and literally found that domestic workers were being sold as chattel on sites like eBay, you know, the equivalent of eBay, the equivalent of Facebook, the, the equivalent of auctions. And the idea three, the 21st century, there's still people being sold as chattel should shock our conscience. Yeah, I did see that report. It was really incredibly disturbing just to see the people listed, you know, like accessories or something. What's interesting is, you know, that was a report in 2020. And you would think that these electronic platforms, these social media platforms and sales platforms would clean up their act. But then I believe it was The Guardian went back in and replicated the same investigation and found that it was still going on last year. And so not much change. And that's because there's no accountability. Like what happened after the BBC series? Basically nothing. No one was held accountable. Not the people putting their domestic workers online and offering them for sale and not the platforms that made that possible. Okay. To that point, it always amazes me. If you upload, you know, Star Wars or some pop video onto YouTube, within seconds, it's flagged and shut down for copyright infringement. And yet we know human traffickers and other criminals freely use social media for their activities. So surely the same technology that blocks one type of illegal activity could be deployed to block another one. It's all a function of risk, right? They know if they violate copyright, the record companies will be suing them viciously (laughs) within about a millisecond. And so they have put resources behind being able to identify copyright violations. And you're absolutely right. If they chose to, they could also identify other violations. They just choose not to. Of the cases 
you're familiar with or have dealt with. Are there any that particularly stand out? You know, many of the cases that we have seen have ended either in default judgments where the defendants just don't even come forward, or we've had a few that have ended in, in jury verdicts. So I'll give you I'll give you an example of a couple of really important cases. And some of the cases settle. A lot of the cases actually settle. So in one case, there was a diplomat, an American diplomat, and her Australian diplomat husband who trafficked domestic workers from Ethiopia. They did it at least twice. They trafficked one domestic worker uh, to Yemen, where the U.S. diplomat was stationed, and they trafficked another Ethiopian domestic worker to Japan, where she was also stationed. And this was a domestic worker held in forced labor in a housing unit on embassy housing compounds. And the wife would go to work, and the husband, who was retired, would stay home and rape the domestic worker. So she was held in forced labor, but she was also held in sexual servitude. So you had asked about intersections between sex trafficking and labor trafficking. One of the things that we see, particularly with women, is when they're held in forced labor, they are uniquely vulnerable, particularly when they're held as domestic workers in homes, they are uniquely vulnerable to being held in sexual servitude as well. So the case against the diplomats was filed in Virginia. Again, none of the facts actually occurred in the United States. It all occurred abroad. But the case was filed in Virginia as a civil case. And the case brought by the domestic worker who was held in Yemen went to trial before a jury. And a jury heard the evidence and awarded the domestic worker more than $3 million in damages. So that's an example of a very courageous young woman coming forward and saying, I was held in forced labor, I was held in sexual servitude, and I want there to be some kind of accountability. There was a case brought by a brilliant lawyer named Dineshka Friesman, and Dineshka Friesman is a partner at a law firm Cohen Milstein. They do a lot of human rights litigation. And Dineshka Friesman brought a case on behalf of Nepali workers trafficked into forced labor, they alleged, on U.S. military bases in Iraq during the war. So during the war in Iraq and in Afghanistan and across the globe, the United States contracts out much of the support service work on the U.S. military bases. And so in Iraq, these Nepali workers alleged that they were transported to a U.S. military base for forced labor to do the cooking, the cleaning, the you know cleaning of the bathrooms, all of the kind of support services needed on a U.S. military base of any size. And several of those Nepali workers were killed by insurgents as they traveled from Jordan to Iraq. Now, the Nepali workers thought that they were going to be working in luxury hotels in Jordan. They had no idea they were on their way to a war zone. Some of the workers who ended up surviving and ended up on U.S. military bases literally ended up on U.S. military bases in a war zone wearing flip-flops. No protective gear whatsoever. So Aneshka did two things. Aneshka Friesman brought a case under the essentially the workers' compensation program of the Department of Defense. It's called the Defense Bases Act. And they were able to secure remedy. They were able to secure damages for family members of the workers who had been killed on their way to the U.S. military base. But then they brought another case involving workers who actually arrived on the U.S. military base and alleged that they were held in forced labor on that U.S. military base. And that case was resolved. And so sometimes it's hard to sort of point to a huge decision, like in the jury verdict I talked about, because a lot of the cases settle. It's not just happening here in the United States, though. There's 
civil litigation and strategic litigation all across the globe. One of the most important cases that was recently brought was brought by Eritrean workers against Nevsin, a Canadian mining company. The Eritrean workers alleged that they were held in forced labor in Eritrea in a mine that had been licensed to Nevsin and that Nevsin was profiting from forced labor. So that case went to the high court in Canada and the high court in Canada ruled that the case could continue and that the workers did have a cause of action and could bring that case in Canada. I think this theme of accountability, which has come out in our conversation today, this theme of accountability is contagious because we now have a global coalition of non-governmental organizations and, and a global coalition of advocates who are fighting to have import bans in every OECD country. So it's not enough to have an import ban just in the United States. You need to have import bans in every developed economy so that goods made with forced labor can't just leave the U.S. port and then, you know, tootle off to Canada. The efforts to hold companies accountable through import bans, that advocacy is increasing. At the same time, we're seeing major efforts across the globe to both prosecute and hold companies civilly liable for forced labor in their supply chains. We're finally seeing action in a field that has been dormant for far too long. You've emphasized that human trafficking and forced labor are both global issues. And, you know, people have listened to this podcast from around the world as well as here in the United States. So if someone, a private citizen, is listening to this and they're someone they're aware of who they feel may have been trafficked or exploited in some manner, what kind of resources would you direct, you know, private citizens to if they want to try to alert the necessary authorities or to take some action just to try to help these people who are in this situation? So it's an excellent question and it really depends on where people are. So here in the United States, there's a national hotline and that number is 888-373-7888. So 888-373-7888. People can call the hotline and report if they have a suspicion that someone is being held in forced labor, it's also possible to tell them. Around the globe, some countries have hotlines, some don't. The main concern is always making sure that you don't put that person in more danger. And so oftentimes, you know, people talk about rescue and how important it is to rescue people. It's very important, from my experience, watching people escape from forced labor, it's very important for them to escape. A lot of people rescue themselves. My instinct is always to provide resources to people. Like if you want to get away, here's a resource. Mm-hmm. You know, there are organizations in all of the countries where people are listening that work on these issues. So there's La Strada in Eastern and Central Europe. There are organizations throughout Western Europe. There are wonderful organizations like the Salvation Army working in, in Australia. So I would, if you have suspicions, and you don't have a hotline, my suggestion would be find a a credible anti-trafficking organization in your jurisdiction that does work with victims, that provides them income, that provides them housing, not just doing awareness raising, right? We should be way beyond awareness raising at this point. We need to be providing real services to people who've suffered. So I would try and find a credible organization, human rights organization or anti-trafficking organization and report it to them because they'll have the best sense of what resources are available to help that person escape. In the next episode, we head to the South Pole 
to hear about Scott of Antarctica and New Zealand government's efforts to preserve his historic legacy.